As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 38, Personal Rule. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week we covered the Graces, a proposed set of political concessions for Catholics in Ireland. They had been agreed after lengthy negotiations, in return for which Charles would receive annual subsidies to pay for an enlarged garrison in Ireland. Yet the wars this garrison was needed for ended. Peace was agreed with France in 1629 and with Spain in 1630. The Dublin government had always been reluctant, if not hostile, to these concessions, and the king no longer had the will to force them to play along. The Graces, so close to having legal clout behind them and drastically improving the lot of Catholics in Ireland, were left on the back burner, but they weren't forgotten by the Anglo-Irish who had bought and paid for them. This week, we return to England to examine how Charles began to govern, without Parliament or the dominating presence of the Duke of Buckingham. Since we're rapidly approaching the Bishops' Wars, and so the first of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, it would be good to cover the broad schools of thought which have waxed and waned over the last hundred years or so, and how they've influenced our view of events. Now, this is not a full historiographical review, and I'll be applying some broad strokes here, but it's important to realise how drastically the historical view of the coming conflicts has evolved and developed over the decades. First, you have Whig history, with an H, which is characterised by a belief that everything has progressed, with occasional delays and detours towards the modern world. A Whiggish view of the civil wars, of all of British history, actually, is that of a slow decay of the old order to be replaced by a new order of industrialisation, capitalism, the Enlightenment, and the political dominance of Parliament over the monarch. This requires the Whig historian to take a long view. 
by the time of the wars, feudalism was essentially dead, the English Reformation had steered England in a unique direction, and the House of Commons increasingly demanded a say in government to counter the autocratic and tyrannical rule of the Stuarts. The outbreak of violence was an inevitable result of all of this. S.R. Gardiner is one such Whiggish historian who popularised the term Puritan Revolution to describe the wars. This is the Whig view, and this remained dominant until the 1930s and the 1940s, when it was gradually displaced by Marxist theory, which sees the revolution through the lens of historical materialism. Anyone who has listened to the early episodes of the Russian Revolution series of revolutions will know all about this. In Marxist theory, all history comes down to economics and class. For similar reasons as the Whigs, the Marxists viewed the fight between the gentry and the nobility as inevitable, though through their lens this was specifically a class conflict. The landed gentry and the urban merchants had achieved economic power, and so demanded matching political power, which the aristocracy resisted. Parliament represented the bourgeois middle class, while the aristocracy backed the king. This was a bourgeois revolution, an English revolution, a term popularised by Christopher Hill. So these are very simplified summaries of Marxist and Whig history, and neither history ignores the immediate short-term factors which sparked the violence. Personal rule was chief among them. For example, Hill criticises Charles for his petulant obstinacy, which lost the confidence of the propertied classes. Another Marxist historian, Lawrence Stone, echoed Hill when he blamed the, quote, folly, obstinacy, and duplicity of Charles I for causing the war. Whig and Marxist theories both focus on long-term factors, decade- or century-long trends, and view the conflict as inevitable. At some point, Parliament was going to go to war with the king. These two theories have something else in common. They're largely out of favour in the historiography, and they have been for some time. Following on from these titans were the revisionists. This was a reaction against the dominant theories of the last few decades, both of which were far too teleological, that is, their position that long-term factors made the wars inevitable. The revisionists said no, this is wrong. No one expected war between king and parliament, and no one was working towards that aim during the reign of the early Stuarts. Professor Tim Harris, whose article, Revisiting the Causes of the English Civil War, has been invaluable in laying out these historiographical trends, summarises their position as this. No one in the 1620s or 1630s knew civil war was going to break out in 1642 or acted as if they wanted that to happen. Instead, revisionists insisted we should judge the early Stuart period on its own terms, without the vantage of hindsight. If we did so, they proposed, we would see that there was no high road to civil war, and that it was far from inevitable that the early Stuart polity would fail. 
countering the Whigs, revisionists argued that the long parliament didn't meet with the intention to depose the king, abolish the monarchy, and demand constitutional power. These demands developed as events unfolded. To counter the Marxists, revisionists pointed out that the royalists and the parliamentarians were clearly not divided along class lines. There were merchants and country gentry fighting for the king, just as there were aristocrats with bloodlines centuries old fighting for parliament. Importantly, neither side stayed static, and as events play out, people switch sides, or back out of the conflict entirely. The ranks of the revisionists include figures like Conrad Russell, John Morrill, Kevin Sharp, and Mark Kishlansky, all of whom I have used extensively in the production of Pax Britannica. Russell famously presented seven effects which had to happen in order for the civil war to erupt when it did. If any of these steps were avoided by the king, the war wouldn't have happened, or at least not in the way that it eventually did. Morrill published The Revolt of the Provinces in 1976, which reviewed the role of the country gentry in the civil wars. Other revisionists tended to focus on the people who count, the court, the king, parliament. This was in contrast to Marxist interpretations, which they saw as spending far too much time on the marginalised, the people who don't count. The personality of Charles, his strengths and weaknesses, was re-evaluated, and greatly rehabilitated. Methodologically, revisionists worked with manuscript sources much more than printed ones. Harris recalls how this led to a fetishization of manuscript sources and the neglect of published printed sources. In response to Whig history, revisionists downplayed the constitutional element of the conflict and refocused on the role religious dissent within the Three Kingdoms played in the breakdown of government. The revisionists held sway for the 70s and 80s, but into the 90s, as is right and proper in academia, a new challenger appeared. Two, actually, in post-revisionism and anti-revisionism. The post-revisionists were partly spawned from the arguments of the revisionists being convincing. They argued that the revisionists were correct, there was no inevitability to the civil wars, and the Stuart government remained viable, if flawed. Revisionism had been a reaction to the teleology of the Whigs and the Marxists, and they had won. As Harris puts it, post-revisionists ask, what do we now need to find out? Post-revisionism tends to avoid the Anglo-centricism of its predecessors, which even revisionists struggled to cope with. This is when we see the emergence of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, or the British Civil Wars, of which the English Civil Wars are just a part. The short-term causes of the war included rebellions in Scotland and Ireland. Exploring these short-term causes led to the realisation that they had long-term causes, based in clashing ideologies, and even along class lines. Similarly, the pendulum has now swung away from focusing on the great men of history, the people that matter, and back towards studying broader trends and the impetus of ordinary people. Harris considers his recent work to be post-revisionist. Charles's personal rule was not an 11-year tyranny, and Charles's reforms were well-intentioned 
and needed. But his approach often made the issues he was attempting to address even worse. Now, I have to reiterate, this is a very, very brief summary, and no one keeps the same opinions for 20 or 30 years. For example, I've seen Mark Kishlansky's early work described as revisionist, and then his later work as post-revisionist. Kevin Sharp didn't even like the term revisionist, and regretted that it had become so divisive, even as he was one of the founding fathers of the field. The thing to take away from all of this is that this period has undergone serious development over the last century of study. Kishlansky commented in 1996 that the literature of Stuart Britain is so vast that it has already outdated several volumes of historiography. There are a lot of competing views, and I'll do my best to highlight the debates as we enter the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. So, as we begin Charles's personal rule, it's important to keep these contrasting theories in mind. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. For many people, the 1630s were a prosperous era of trade and growth. Peace and neutrality in the war between the European powers meant that British ships could, in theory, travel to any port. English merchants grew wealthy from transporting the goods which other countries couldn't. Tonnage and poundage, still illegally collected, became less onerous as the merchants' overall profit increased. For British Protestants, the pain of abandoning their co-religionists to papist tyranny was soothed somewhat 
by the entry of France into the war and the glorious victories of the Lion of the North, Gustavus Adolphus, which left the Catholics shivering and shaking. English arms had not faced total disaster during the war, with the colony of New France being captured in a largely naval campaign, before being returned to French control in the peace. These years also secured the succession. The newly reconciled royal couple produced a son, Charles, in 1630. He was followed by Mary in 1631, James in 1633, Elizabeth in 1635, as well as two more daughters and another son in the later 30s and 1640s. The kingdoms would certainly have no shortage of heirs. This had the effect of replacing Charles's sister Elizabeth, the wife of Frederick of the Palatine, as heir presumptive. Her situation was no longer a matter of national security though Charles would continue to support her even after Frederick's death in 1632. But this golden age, if it existed, was not for everyone. Politically, the disaster of Charles's English parliaments cast doubt on the legality of Charles's reign, especially as Charles proceeded to rule as best he could without calling another. In 1631, he declared he would, on no account, summon another parliament. Religiously, many of his subjects resented the presence of Lord and his cohort at court, who were suspected of being Arminian heretics. Likewise, they abhorred the open Catholicism of the Queen and her entourage. Even after her French attendants were deported, they were replaced by Catholic English. Financially, the king was determined to go without parliamentary taxation, and this required some imaginative economic policy. Charles reordered his government during this period. He had been very impressed by the Spanish court during his brief visit, and wished to bring some of that formality and ceremony to his own. He clearly defined who had access to his private apartments, and brought some restraint to a previously wild court culture. He took an active role in government, regularly attending Privy Council meetings and establishing committees to oversee Ireland, the colonies and trade. The Council of the North, as well as the Privy Councils in Scotland and Ireland, had their powers increased and a book of orders was drafted to try and further centralise the provision of justice out in the country. He promoted several people who had publicly opposed him, including William Noy, a champion of the Petition of Right, who he made Attorney General in 1631. There's also Sir Thomas Wentworth, who became Lord President of the North in 1628, and would go further. His Privy Council was 42 members strong. Hardly very private, but certainly a council. Not that all 42 always attended, most were honorary appointments, and only about a dozen regularly met. Charles travelled out into the counties in something akin to an Elizabethan royal progress. He also attempted to reform the militia and the responsibilities of the Lord Lieutenants. Regulations for drill, equipment and logistics were meant to make the trained bands into a viable military force. In this, he was largely unsuccessful. Financially, Charles was saddled with around £2 million of debt in 1629. He had already sold a significant portion of the royal estates, 
which had brought in around £600,000, but had led to riots as people were evicted. And of course, it couldn't be done repeatedly. He'd run out of land. He wasn't as much of a spender as his father, but he was an avid collector of fine art, and he commissioned numerous new builds and renovations throughout England. £130,000 alone went on renovating Henrietta Maria's palace. The biggest drain, however, was his family. His five surviving children each cost money, and more with every year, and he continued to pay his exiled sister and her many children a stipend. Against this output stood the Lord Treasurer, Sir Richard Weston, who was made Earl of Portland in 1633. Not as adventurous as Cranfield had been with his cuts, Portland nevertheless reduced the costs of the household and cut pensions by a third. He had narrowly avoided impeachment only because Parliament was dissolved in 1629, publicly disliked because he was rightly suspected of being a Catholic. Despite this, under his direction, recusancy fines for Catholics increased again and again until they were five times the original amount. For this, as well as his pro-Spanish sympathies, he earned the ire of the Queen. Famously, Charles's desire to restore his finances without calling a parliament led to some legally dubious methods. For starters, the Crown began fining those who had infringed on the royal forests. Other feudal relics were dusted off and brought to bear. Fines were levelled at those building new homes where an ancient edict said they couldn't. Gentlemen who owned at least £40 of land were, by ancient law, expected to present themselves to the king at his coronation and at the birth of a son to be knighted. If they didn't, they were to be fined. Considering James had sold knighthoods by the dozen, England was not short on knights, and the requirement for knights to actually provide military service was long abandoned. But the fines were still on the books, and so the fines were dished out earning the crown more than £170,000 by 1635. Charles didn't just revive unused statutes. The court of wards and liveries, the hated instrument which James had offered to abolish in 1610, if Parliament granted a fixed payment of £200,000 every year, well, this was invigorated. Compromises and unofficial exemptions were ended, raking in further cash. The Crown granted a series of licences, not monopolies, mind you, because they'd been illegal since 1624, so definitely not monopolies. These patents were for programmes ranging from the draining of the fens in eastern England to the sale of tobacco and the manufacture of soap. These, again, were definitely not monopolies. Why does everyone keep asking if they're monopolies, honestly? In some ways, they actually weren't monopolies, such as with the soap patent. The competing soap makers simply made a better product, and the backlash to the royal patent only increased the sales of the competitor. It worked out for the treasury in the end, since the crown actually took more in royalties and dues from the existing soap makers than before. Charles was also not above borrowing from the pockets of his courtiers, which was only fair. They benefited, officially and unofficially, from many of these projects. 
The most infamous of these technically legal but publicly damaging ways of raising cash was ship money. This was the traditional levy demanded of coastal towns to contribute a ship of a specific tonnage or to provide the funds to hire or buy one. Now, despite what I previously thought about this policy, both Kishlansky and Jane Olmeyer argue that Charles had valid reasons for demanding ship money. English shipping and coasts were being raided by Dutch, French and Spanish privateers, as well as slaving raids perpetrated by Barbary corsairs. Merchants had petitioned the king for protection from these attacks, while English territorial waters were not being respected with belligerent powers fighting naval battles within sight of the coast. Charles also hoped to throw his diplomatic weight around to ensure the restoration of his nephew as Elector Palatine, and having a strong naval force was necessary for that to work. Each of the relevant powers, France, Spain, and the United Provinces, were willing to make promises to this end, but each required the assistance of a strong English navy in return. To this end, Charles ordered the construction of two new ships every year to rebuild the fleet. But ships are expensive, and far beyond Charles's ordinary revenues. Ship money had been on the cards as recently as 1628, but Charles had now checked with his Attorney General and was assured that it was within his prerogative to call. So, the writs were sent out in 1634. We will return to the results of this policy in two weeks' time, in episode 40. All of these methods of raising money and cutting costs, get this, actually worked. By 1635, the crown was actually solvent. Portland could be congratulated for a job well done, but if you wanted to do so, you'd have to shout through six feet of earth. Portland died in the same year, and Charles mourned his death. He had done wonders for the treasury, had placed the crown on stable financial footing for the first time in years, but at what cost? Next week, we will look at the religious reforms which were introduced during Charles's personal rule, and at a group of people who took one look at them and tried to get as far away as they physically could. Thank you to Justine, who became a patron at the $1 level. She has been rewarded for her generosity with an ad-free feed, as well as the title, prestigious as it is, of Lady Justine. She is now rubbing shoulders with the great and the good of the kingdom, including the king's favourite, Andrew Shoemaker, the royal headsman executed today, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Marquess of Hereford, Christopher Remo, and the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz. If you want to join their ranks, please go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to join the House of Lords. This is just a reminder that you can follow Pax Britannica on Twitter and on Facebook. If you enjoy the show, please consider taking the time to leave a review, or to tell a friend, or share the podcast on social media. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.
What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.